Living in Southern California, you can't control soaring housing prices, increasing insurance rates, or sky-high interest rates. But one thing you can control is the cost of your power. You can minimize your power bill with SolarMax technology. SolarMax is offering a complete solar system for $39.83 a month with zero down for a limited time only. Plus, you get a federal tax credit of 30%. Contact SolarMaxTech.com and keep your home energy prices low forever. Own your power. Go to SolarMaxTech.com. Again, that's SolarMaxTech.com. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Nearly two weeks have passed since Hamas unleashed the worst attack on Israeli soil in 50 years. But the sorrow and rage has not dissipated one bit. In fact, as Israel buries its dead and continues to find more bodies, the shock of what happened continues to metastasize. But one thing is abundantly clear. Once the dust settles and the war ends, those who are in charge must be held accountable. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing growing condemnation for the security lapses preceding the brutal Hamas attack in southern Israel, with the family member of one casualty telling a TV broadcast, we will never forgive you. Israeli newspapers and social media users have blamed the intelligence shortcomings on the Prime Minister, which led to the biggest attack on Israel since the 1973 Yom Kippur War and have called for his resignation. But the Hamas attack is arguably worse than the one that launched the Yom Kippur War. Hamas, a guerrilla organization that controls the Gaza Strip, killed many more Israeli civilians in the first days of this war than Egypt and Syria. Sovereign nations with national armies killed during the October War 50 years ago. Hamas struck targets deep inside Israeli towns. The magnitude and sophistication of these attacks, carried out in multiple locations and involving thousands of fighters, imply that this offensive was in the works for more than several months, if not longer. And intelligence gathering should have been easier in Gaza, where Israel is reputed to have massive surveillance system, than it was in Egypt and Syria in the early 1970s. So the question becomes, how could Israel have missed the planning on this terrible assault? Now I want to be very clear about something. I'm not military or intelligence expert, and I won't pretend to be one. These answers will come in time, and whoever was asleep at the switch will be held accountable. What's more concerning to me is the effect that these attacks have had on the psyche of Israel as a whole and its idea of itself as a nation. I have many friends and family in Israel, and as the son of a Holocaust survivor, the notion of a Jewish homeland, it's sacrosanct. Ever since the founding of the state of Israel, there was a promise that Jews finally had a place to go where they would be safe from the hate and the barbarism that had followed them for so many centuries. Here, in this homeland, an armed Jewish citizenry would protect itself from the evils of the world. 
And for better part of 50 years, Israel has held up its end of the bargain. And as such, its institutions like IDF, Shin Bet, Mossad were seen as almost invulnerable. Israel was safe. And as a Jew, you'd hear it all the time, Israel was safer than America. That it stood a better chance of being hit by a car in New York City than being killed by a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. But seeing the images of Hamas terrorists paragliding out of Gaza was a shocking sight and the worst nightmare of most Israelis. Gaza was in fact not at all secure. And here they were, pouring over the wall, coming to murder Jews. Innocent Jews who were doing nothing other than enjoying themselves at a festival. In southern Israel, Hamas terrorists broke into a room where a family of five was hiding and slaughtered every single one of them. Babies have been beheaded, women, young women raped, old women raped, all of them taken to Gaza. I mean, scenes like this pose a very simple moral calculus. Do you believe that it is wrong for innocent people to be slaughtered in their homes and held hostage as human shields, then gleefully murdered like animals? And who will pay for Hamas's incursion? Well, the same people as always. The ordinary men, women, and children. The innocent ordinary men, women, and children who make up a majority of the two million people living in Gaza who are already paying a heavy toll as Israel plans its ground invasion. Almost immediately after news of the attack broke, celebrations broke out amongst a group of Western leftists, hailing Hamas's incursion as an act of decolonization. This wasn't just a handful of individuals, but included journalists, professors at elite universities, and public figures who lacked the nuance and understanding of what's happening on the ground, but nevertheless still feel that the need to squawk because it has somehow become hip to be anti-Israel. These are the same people who claim Israel is an apartheid state and somehow deserve what happened to them. I mean, these fucking idiots like Russell Brand. I mean, that's who comes to mind. Or the president of University of Pennsylvania. Or the president and the folks over there at Harvard. But the world will always be full of these fucking morons and these motherfucking haters. I mean, my social media feed is testament to that very fact. And now for the main event. Time to text the group chat because Barbados is now closer than ever. A beautiful island adventure awaits. And getting here just got a little easier. Warm up your winter and escape to our tropical paradise. Connect seamlessly from LAX with Cayman Airways starting this November. Immerse yourself in the rich Beijing culture, spirit, and of course food in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. Sure, you can vacation anywhere, but we promise vacations are better here. Look now at CaymanAirways.com. Living in Southern California, you can't control soaring housing prices, increasing insurance rates, or sky-high interest rates. But one thing you can control is the cost of your power. You can minimize your power bill with SolarMax technology. SolarMax is offering a complete solar system for $39.83 a month with zero down for a limited time only. Plus, you get a federal tax credit of 30%. Contact SolarMaxTech.com and keep your home energy prices low forever. Own your power. Go to SolarMaxTech.com. Again, that's SolarMaxTech. Dot com. Behold! 
direct from Broadway, MJ. The Tony Award-winning musical is starting something all across America. Tickets now to what the Washington Post calls a runaway hit, MJ the Musical. Coming to the Hollywood Pantages Theater December 20th through January 28th. Tickets at broadwayandhollywood.com. Fires are becoming more unpredictable, and charred soil is increasing our risk for flooding. Knowing your flood risk builds resilience, and having flood insurance gets you disaster ready. Visit floodsmart.gov wildfires to get ready and stay resilient. So how do we live with one another without murdering one another? I mean, that's just wrong. And that's really the fundamental question that I wanted to ask my next guest before things got too heated. Nathan Thrall is a Jerusalem-based journalist and the author of A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. The book, which was released just one day before the Hamas attacks, is an exploration of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that takes readers on a Rashomon-like deep dive into a school bus crash in the West Bank that killed children and one teacher, and the ways it was compounded by a dysfunctional status quo for Israelis and Palestinians alike. The former director of the Arab-Israeli Project, Thrall spent over a decade with the International Crisis Group. His reported features, analysis, and criticism have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, the London Review of Books, and the New York Review of Books, as well as being translated into more than a dozen languages. He has been described as one of the best informed and most trenchant observers of the conflict by the Financial Times, as well as an American analyst with a severe allergy to conventional wisdom. That was by the New York Times and the author of a series of articles that have defined the new intellectual and political parameters for what is increasingly recognized as Israel-Palestine's one state or post-two-state reality. That was by the New York Review of Books. Now, I want to be very clear about something. Thrall and I don't agree. We don't agree on much. I mean, what we both agree is that innocent people should not be killed. And this is a terrible situation that none of us see an actual resolution for. Now, Thrall has been on a book tour outside of Israel while his wife and daughter remain in Jerusalem. And in many ways, he must internalize what's happening in a state of exile as he zooms in from one interview to the next. In the days immediately preceding the attacks, Thrall spoke to The New Yorker, to The Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, The Forward, and Time magazine. By the time he joins us here on Mea Culpa, well, Thrall has seen had enough. So I must warn you that the conversation that you're about to hear, it's extremely emotional. We fight on basically everything. We don't agree on almost everything. And it's nevertheless impossible to not feel this passionate when you're witnessing your country and the people who live inside it come apart at the seams. And you know, one of the things I say in this, in this um, recording is the fact that I have almost 200 second cousins that live there, many of whom have been called to action. 
And my heart bleeds for everyone, and not just on one side, on both sides. I talk about how I have friends who are Palestinian, and I would lay my life down for them. They are my closest of friends, and my heart bleeds for them and any members of their family or friends' families that are being attacked as a direct result and losing life. This is not supposed to happen. So what you're about to hear, it's the sound of two people coming to terms with heartbreak, loss, and the end of a dream, even though we don't agree on virtually anything. So what comes next is the operative question. What do we do? And more importantly, you'll find that out, and let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Nathan, you are currently on tour for your new book, which is entitled A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, When the Hamas Attack First Took Place. Now, your book has been described as a Roshaman, uh like deep dive into a school bus crash in the West Bank that killed six children and one teacher, and the ways it was compounded by a dysfunctional status quo for Israelis and Palestinians alike. Can you do my listeners a favor and unpack how that dysfunctional status quo manifests itself into what happened on October 7th? Well, you know, the... the book uh, about this tragic accident is really um, about the situation that exists day in and day out for uh, Israelis and Palestinians when there isn't a war in Gaza, when there isn't some uh, massive uh, uh, escalation. And uh, right now, our eyes are rightly um, turned to to the war in, in Gaza. Um, but what happened on October 7th is one of many episodes of horrible brutality and bloodshed that is um, continuing to recur as a result of this deeply unjust system that has existed in place for decades, where in the simplest terms, we have Israel controlling an equal number of Palestinians and Jews. Seven million Israeli Jews, seven million Palestinians. The vast majority of those Palestinians are living without basic uh, civil rights. And um, we're never going to see an end to this bloodshed until we address that uh, deep cause of, of, of what um, continues to lead to these escalations that um, that we're horrified by, but we call for a restoration of calm when it happens. And what is the calm we're, we're asking to be restored? We're asking for the calm of the situation described in this book, of a system where hundreds of thousands of people on the other side of a wall are living in uh, gross neglect. And I'm talking about outside Jerusalem, not even the wall around Gaza. Well, okay, in your book, you... Talk about Israel's dominance of Palestinian lives um, as and you characterize it as absolute and um, totalizing what you also say Michael um, Fuckholt calls biopower populations treated as problems to be solved by technologies of discipline and control. 
I don't really understand it. Please understand, I've actually never been to Israel. I have many friends who are Palestinian. I clearly have not just many friends, but I have probably 200 second cousins that live throughout Israel. So explain to me what you mean by this biopower. So I'm not sure where you're getting the biopower, to be honest with you. Uh, that's not in my book anywhere. Um, and do you agree? Uh, do you agree with the statement by this guy, Michael uh, Foucault? Um, so, I mean, the, the what you're quoting is, is um, you know, a very prominent, uh, you know, academic theorist, uh, Foucault, who um is cited a a, a lot um, um but um but this book is really it's a work of narrative nonfiction and you would never like citing Foucault would be kind of the last thing you would find in this book this is a book that's telling a very human story of what it's like for the individuals living in this place so I tell the story of a of a bus accident that occurs just outside of Jerusalem you know this is two miles away from my uh, home, and there is a walled ghetto right next to it. It's part of half of that ghetto is within municipal Jerusalem. And uh, a group of kindergartners got on a uh, bus to go on a school trip. And because they live inside this walled ghetto, and half of them are not allowed to go to nearby play areas just on the other side of the wall in a, in a Jewish neighborhood and settlement of, of East Jerusalem, they had to go on this long circuitous path to another uh, area on the other side of the wall. And they were struck by a giant semi-trailer. The bus flipped over, caught fire. Um, and who was left there to deal with it because this area is one of gross neglect where even emergency services uh, would not go into the area where the parents live uh, without an army escort. And and so the bystanders who were Palestinian who were, who came and uh, to the scene, they're pulling soot-covered children off of this burning bus and rescuing dozens of them. And by the time the first Israeli fire truck gets there, um, all the kids had been evacuated, and they had been evacuated in different directions based on the color of the ID of the Palestinians who hauled them off in their private cars. So if you were a Palestinian with a blue ID, which meant you're allowed to enter Jerusalem, you would take the kid to a superior nearby Jerusalem hospital. And if you are a Palestinian with a green ID, you would take the kids to a Ramallah or another hospital in the West Bank. And I tell the story of one father, Abid Salama, who learns that his kid is on this bus that got hit rushes to the scene. He uh, tries to stop uh, a, a group of uh, soldiers in a Jeep to give him a lift up the road to the accident site. They refuse. He's racing to get there. And by the time he gets there, all the kids are gone. He asks the crowd, you know, where are the kids? And he's told they're at the military base, uh, which is a, a minute away. He's told that they're at Jerusalem hospitals, which he can't access because he's got a green ID. They're he's told they're at Ramallah Hospital, which he can access. So he goes there and he goes to the Ramallah Hospital and it takes this man 
over 24 hours to find out the fate of his son. And he's sending relatives to go search in Jerusalem because they have blue IDs. And really the whole idea of this book is not just Abed's story, but the story of others, of, of a settler paramedic who came very late to the scene and who's horrified by what he sees. He sees the burned out shell of a bus. All he can think think about are the suicide bombings uh, that he had to attend to. Um, there's a, you know, a Palestinian doctor, a woman who works for UNRWA, and she is one of the people who's pulling kids off of this burning bus. And all she can think about is her own uh, trauma, the worst day of her life, when as a young doctor in 1985, she worked for the Palestine Red Crescent. Israel bombed the PLO headquarters and a lot of Tunisians and Palestinians died, and she was sent to pull the, the bodies and body parts out of the rubble. So the book is really, it's its a very immersive uh, narrative book that puts you in the shoes of Jews and Palestinians living in this place, living in close proximity to one another, totally separate lives, but lives that collide uh, on this day. And... Um, and so to bring it back, you know, to 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 Foucault, I just it, it's like the far, furthest thing from from the approach of this book. So would you then say that the underlying message of this book is sort of discussing the deliberate policy of apartheid uh, in which, you know, the Israelis um, seek to make, you know, uh, Palestinian lives more difficult, more dangerous, um, you know, more um, antiquated? Yeah, um, absolutely. That is the theme of the book, is this system, this grossly unjust system uh, where Jews have rights and Palestinians don't, and what it means to live in that system, and what it means to be in that system on the worst day of a parent's life. And what the real consequences are of something like having a green ID or a blue ID or what the consequences are, you know, why do these people, these parents of the kids on this bus, the kindergartners, why do they live in a walled ghetto? Why is the route of the, the wall shaped in the way that it is? Well, it's shaped in the way that it is because there is an overriding Israeli policy uh, in Jerusalem to minimize the number of Palestinians who are in the heart of the city. There's this explicit demographic goal to keep the, the uh, Jewish majority as high as possible in Jerusalem and, uh, and to relinquish as little land as possible. So they take these dense areas and they lop them off from the rest of the city and put up a checkpoint and make it very difficult for Palestinians to enter Jerusalem, where they have schools and work and uh, higher paying jobs. On the fourth side, there the wall surrounds this area with on three sides. On the fourth side is a different kind of a wall that runs through a segregated road called Route 4370, which is also known famously as the Apartheid Road. Palestinian uh, traffic on one side, Israeli traffic on the other, and a giant wall running through it. So this community, it's now about 130,000 people, are completely encircled. They don't have a single ATM 
inside this place. They are uh, totally neglected by the municipality that they're paying taxes to. They're uh, forced to burn trash in the middle of the street. The The roads have no uh, lanes. There are no sidewalks. There aren't playgrounds. When I drive in from my home in Jerusalem in the same city and come and visit Abid Salama, the, the main uh, protagonist of the book, I'm I'm squeezing my car up against a, a you know a millimeter away from a parked car to my right, rolling down my window, pulling in the mirror just to let a bus pass because that's how narrow the main artery for 130,000 people is. This is all happening right underneath the manicured grounds of Israel's most prestigious university, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And you, on the campus of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, you can look down on this walled ghetto, on parents and children waiting in line in a, in a checkpoint. The parents themselves are afraid to send their kids to the main Jerusalem schools on the, that, that are accessible to them on the other side of the wall because they don't want to put their kids through confronting soldiers uh, every morning and afternoon. So um, that is the kind of meta subject of the book is this system and how this system led to all kinds of foreseeable uh, eventualities on the day of this crash. But is it not fair then to turn around and to say as well, look, I understand your point and I understand the premise and the thesis of your book. The problem that I see with the area, and again, I am no expert in this area. I've never been to Israel. I've never been to that to the Middle East. So for me speaking, it's very much out of turn. I only speak based upon what I read and what I'm seeing. And the fact that I have many friends who are Palestinian, and I love them dearly, and they love me dearly and my family. Here's the problem. You have Hamas. There is no way to distinguish between Palestinians do not rule themselves. Rest assured, if they did, I personally don't think you would have this, we'll call it apartheid system uh, or these walls. The problem is that you have a group of terrorists, of absolute monsters, whose sole goal is to eradicate every single Jew and to destroy Israel. So... How do you not then wall yourself off? How do you not then create boundaries in order to protect your citizens? Um, so, first of all, uh, Hamas does not rule in the limited pockets of uh, autonomy, semi-autonomy that the Palestinian Authority has uh, in the West Bank. So the walled ghetto I'm describing next to my home, uh, that's not ruled by Hamas. Ramallah is not ruled by Hamas. Nablus isn't ruled by Hamas. All of these places are little mini versions of Gaza that are that are segregated and controlled by Israel from the outside, and then Israel goes in, you know, on a on a daily and weekly basis into these areas. They have uh, the Palestinian Authority, which is working hand in glove with them to do uh, joint uh, security. And um, 
Israel is very grateful to the Palestinian Authority for cooperating with them and providing them with uh, the quiet that they have enjoyed since since 2005 uh, uh, in the West Bank. And so the same kind of policies that we see applied to Gaza are applied to an area that doesn't that doesn't have Hamas. And if we want to go back historically, I mean, since the state was founded in 1948, you had uh, a population of Palestinians inside Israel proper before there was uh, the 1967 war and uh, no Israeli control of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And you had Palestinians who were not expelled uh, in the 1948 war who remained. And those Palestinians got citizenship in the state, and they lived under a military government with uh, permits and curfews and the inability to leave their uh, areas without permission and areas that only Jews could go into and they could not. And these people were quiescent. They did not, there was no uprising. There was no uh, threat from them. And they were living for the the first uh, 17 years of the state under a military government that Jews were not living under. So, so the notion, that, and this precedes the existence of Hamas uh, by decades. So, so the notion that but let's not talk about decades. Let's talk about right now because right now there's a war that's going on, and yeah. there are thousands and thousands of people that are dead, and all I keep hearing is, uh, on one side, you know, the allegation is that Israel is being brutal um, to the Palestinians uh, in the Gaza. Um, Of course, we all saw what transpired on October 7th with the land, sea, and air attacks that ended up taking hostages, killing thousands, and so on. The sensation that ignited Broadway is back. The Wiz. new vision for a brand new day. Ease on down and get tickets to The Wiz at the Hollywood Pantages Theater, February 13th through March 3rd. For tickets, visit Broadway at Hollywood.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Direct from Broadway, MJ, the Tony Award winning musical, is starting something all across America. Tickets now to what the Washington Post calls a runaway hit. MJ the Musical. Coming to the Hollywood Pantages Theater December 20th through January 28th. Tickets at BroadwayandHollywood.com. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day. And for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry 
with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I guess my only question to you would be, so what would be, what would be an acceptable response, in your opinion, to the actions of Hamas on October 7th by the IDF, by the Israeli Defense Force? What would be acceptable, in your opinion, for them right now to go and to do in order to counter what took place? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, before I tell you what's acceptable, I'll tell you what's unacceptable. What's unacceptable is, is collectively punishing 2.3 million innocent people who were as surprised by the Hamas attack uh, as Israelis were. The 2.3 million innocent people of Gaza, where water, food, electricity, and fuel was cut off to them, it's a war crime. Uh, it's unequivocal. The U.S. is complicit in that war crime. We gave a green light to that. There is no uh, scholar of international law who will tell you that Israel is not committing a war crime by by collectively punishing those people? So that's what's unacceptable. And it's Iman, company, and, and which which I'm sorry, which scholars are you referring to? I mean, ask any international human rights organization. They've all put out statements. The United Nations. It is collective punishment and a war crime. There, you you okay, cannot. So let's just go. So let's just go back to the question because. To be honest with you, I've yet to have somebody give sort of a cogent response to that answer. What is acceptable? What do you think yeah, would I'm, I'm be an acceptable I'm response? I'm just telling you what's not. It's just, it's just a simple, it's, I, I understand what's not. Clearly, let me be very clear about something. As I said before, I have many friends who are Palestinian, and my heart goes yep. out to them. And if they have family there, I don't ever want to see a single innocent person ever lose their life, because we all have to agree. There's one thing we'll agree is that you only have one life, and life is precious. So I'm with you on that one. But I'm just trying to figure out what's the acceptable, what's the acceptable response by a group of terrorists that, by land, sea, and air, smash through gates, fly over in these paragliders, also these amphibious vehicles, they murder babies, toddlers, they kidnap young women, old women, they rape, they rape them, they set some of them on fire in cages. The brutality is medieval. It's medieval. So what's an acceptable response to a group of people that invade your territory and commit these atrocities? What would be the acceptable response by the IDF? Uh, I don't want to get into litigating the details of these claims, but I just want to say that some of the things that you just mentioned. I'm so sorry, wait, wait, wait. Are you denying that that's what happened? No, I, I am telling you that some of the things that you just mentioned happened, and some of them I have not seen verified. So I do not, you know, I, again, it doesn't matter. What happened was brutal enough without exaggeration. What happened enough was horrific enough, and those were war crimes. Uh, and, you know, it's. I just want to, for the record, I would like us to try and stick to what's verified. And some of the things you mentioned, 
have not been verified by anybody. Um, so uh, uh, the uh, response by Israel to the the horror that they experienced on Octo October 7th is they have every right to uh, go after Hamas and to go after the fighters of Hamas and to uh, do everything in their power to bring back the hostages. So, so that's very clear. There's no ambiguity here about what one is entitled to do in response to an attack and what one isn't entitled to do. You are not entitled to punish 2.3 million people. And by the way, this is being legitimized by the mainstream Israeli press leading journalists who are using genocidal rhetoric, the president of the state of Israel, who's a center left president, saying that there are not uh, that, that the people of Gaza are not innocent and that they are responsible. Th this is setting the stage and legitimizing the worst brutality. The, the, the response that what they experienced was brutal. What they're doing is brutal. The, these we have to stand against war crimes whoever is committing them i'm i'm so i'm so confused on on that point that the mainstream media is not talking about that random killings of gazans is fair or that it's warranted the civilians. I'm in talking fact, about the Israeli press. I'm talking about is leading I've, I've Israeli read, I've, journalists. I mean, I've read, listen, I've read, I've read uh, Jerusalem Post. I've been reading Haaretz. I've, I've read them all. You know, I, unfortunately, I don't sleep. That's not what I'm seeing coming out. What I'm seeing coming out from there is that they have a very difficult problem because Hamas uses Palestinians as shields. They're using them as you know as ways to avoid the response by the IDF according to at least some of the military individuals here in America including individuals like Malcolm Nance who lived there as well who's i mean this is his thing they're shooting rockets out of people's private residences towards Israel and so if you're going to allow a rocket to sit in your kitchen window to be facing Israel, I think it's only fair to say that they have a right to defend themselves as well. So let me just, since you're not aware of what's being said, let me just to just tell you, uh, uh, David Mizrahi Vertheim, an editor and journalist in Israel, says, uh, turn the strip into a slaughterhouse. Okay. And who's he with? Uh, I don't recall. Shimon Ricklin, a leading Israeli journalist and uh, former politician. Uh, sorry, not not uh, former politician. Shimon Ricklin, a, a leading journalist, says Gaza has to be wiped off from the face of the earth. Yinon Magal, a journalist and and uh, former politician, says it's time for Nakba two. That's the the uh, mm -hmm. forced expulsion and and uh, and flight of 750,000 Palestinians in 1948. That's what he's calling for, a second round of Nakba 2. Uh, 
a, a Likud minister says, bring down buildings, bomb without distinction, stop with this impotence. You have ability, there is worldwide legitimacy, flatten Gaza without mercy. This time there is no room for mercy. There's a Likud uh, uh, MK, a member of Knesset, who says, Nakba to the enemy now. This is this is calling for the expulsion of 750,000 people again. This day is our Pearl Harbor. We will still learn the lessons. Right now, one goal, Nakba, a Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of, of 48, a Nakba in Gaza and a Nakba for anyone who dares to join. Uh, Shimon Ricklin, again, a very prominent leading Israeli journalist, say, why exactly do we have an atomic bomb? I don't think you can appreciate the degree to which there is a legitimization of uh, collective punishment and brutality and setting the set stage for uh, the worst sorts of war crimes th that are already being committed. But, but, but Nathan, in all fairness, any democracy has far left media and far-right media. I mean, come on, what about here in, in America, we have Tucker Carlson, as I like to refer to him as Fucker Carlson. I mean, this guy will say anything. He thinks that Mike Pence should have been hung on the Capitol on January 6th. The fact that they're saying it doesn't mean that that's what Israel okay, is doing. Okay, how about the defense minister? How about the defense minister of the, of the state of Israel calling the, call, saying, referring to them as human animals? What, what about the president? Well, of the I think he was referring to I think he was referring to Hamas. And I think it's only fair no, to that, say that, that, that these people the that these that people the that he murdered a general these innocent about Gaza. by the way, by the way, these innocent people that were killed at that fair, they weren't just Israelis. And from my understanding, there was like 32 different countries of children that were killed as a direct result, not just Jews, Muslims were killed, Christians were killed, black, white, um, Asian. I mean, there were people all over the place. They walked in, they randomly gunned down yeah, a yeah. group of but kids again, that were enjoying no affairs. So this. the problem that we have is we have the Palestinian population is completely run from my understanding, again, by Hamas. And anybody that says, it's almost like saying that in the, in the 70s when the mob was running Brooklyn, just because they lived in Bensonhurst didn't mean they didn't control Brighton Beach. They are controlling it, and they are wreaking havoc on They're their own people. What? What, what are they They controlling? are controlling all of the Gaza. No one disputes that Hamas is uh, the governing uh, body in Gaza. Nobody disputes that. And nobody then they, disputes then that they atrocities need to be turned over. But, but uh, just a second. The, the defense minister, look up the things that he's saying. He's saying that we have to destroy Gaza. He, you know, the, the, the center left president, the former head of the Labor Party, is saying it's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. This isn't Tucker Carlson. This is the, the center left former head of, of the Labor Party, who is now the president, the spokesperson of the state of Israel. There, the IDF spokesperson said our goal is damage, not precision. They are openly admitting that they are killing civilians with intent. This, these are war crimes. 
we must be doing everything we can to stop it. And the and the brutality that we saw on on Saturday, October 7th, is horrific and contemptible and reprehensible. And it should not be used as a justification for Israel to commit its own brutality and atrocity and war crimes. It's simple. Again, you know, one of the things that I keep trying to, you know, to bring out is, again, what is an acceptable response? It's almost like, imagine your next door neighbor. I well, I don't you. think so. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a response. I mean, it's easy to say. Why isn't sure, it a response? Go in go- because because the guys who are part of Hamas are not walking around wearing shirts that say "I'm part of Hamas." They're hiding amongst the population no, that, you know, of their own people. Do you they, know what- they are not. They're not purple. They're not gray. They're not orange. They they are exactly the same group of people that are hiding amongst the civilians. And so to say they should go in and only go after these terrorists, it is not simple when they go ahead. However, there needs to be a response in order to prevent this from ever happening again. So that's not really an acceptable response. Can I I just address what you're saying? So Of course. So if you listen to the Israeli military itself, what do they say? They're not saying that they're all uh, without uniforms in in the population. They're saying that there's an underground network of tunnels with hundreds of these armed guys who do have uniforms that um, and and they are s- sitting in these tunnels hiding waiting for Israel to come in with a ground invasion. They're not in the middle of, uh, of, of Khan Yunus. Why do you think Israel has killed so few of them so far? They have the best, uh, the, the best surveillance of these guys in the world. They're listening to every single thing they say. Just, just now they released an audio of two of them uh, talking to one another. Uh, they are trying. They have hit a couple of Hamas leaders, but they have only hit a couple because they are all underground in this deep tunnel network that is inaccessible to the innocent people of Gaza, who are all above ground hiding out in schools and 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 hospitals, hoping that they won't be be hit. And they've been and um, to force a million people to tell a million people they have to leave their homes and move to southern Gaza and transfer them. That is absolutely unacceptable. That is a war crime. Well. No, it's I don't I don't know if I would say it's a war crime. They have a right it's within which to retaliate. The sensation that ignited Broadway is back. The Wiz. A brand new vision for a brand new day. Ease on down and get tickets to The Wiz at the Hollywood Pantages Theater, February 13th through March 3rd. For tickets, visit Broadway at Hollywood.com. Direct from Broadway, MJ, the Tony Award winning musical, is starting something all across America. Tickets now to what the Washington Post calls a runaway hit. MJ the Musical. Coming to the Hollywood Pantages Theater December 20th through January 28th. Tickets at Broadway and Hollywood.com. 
Interestingly enough, because he made a, a point about how you know nobody wants to ensure that the Gazan civilians are out of harm's way, it's actually not accurate. I mean, even Al Jazeera in their paper, 78%, a poll showed that 78% of Americans want Washington to work on some form of a plan with Israeli intelligence to allow civilians of Gaza to not be impacted by Israel's bombardment. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think you're like, conflating you know, what you know I said crazy... about the Israeli public and the Israeli press and Americans. I was talking about the legitimization of collective punishment that is happening in Israel from its elected leaders, from its president, from its defense ministers, and from, from minister and from its leading politicians. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well. Okay. Um, look, uh, like I said, you know, I'm just trying to find, you know, what's unacceptable. They have to ensure that this never happens again. And based upon the plan that you want to put forth, it is an impossible, impossible. You know what it's almost like? It's almost like you have a next door neighbor who's seven feet tall, weighs 300 pounds, and is an absolute uh, jujitsu, Muay Thai, you know, multiple discipline fighter, an, an MMA fighter. And then you decide that one day you just want to walk over and punch him in the face simply because you feel that you can or that, you know, you don't like the fact that he has a fence, you know, around your property. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think happens when you take an action that way? They, they clearly realized that Israel was going to retaliate. They knew what they were doing. It's not like this was concocted by two guys over the course of a weekend and a beer. This was yeah. a one-year-plus planned strategy going on underneath the noses of the Israelis, which, again, is a big question as to how something like that even happens. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really understand what you think you're, you're uh, rebutting right now. Uh, obviously, Hamas had to expect that Israel was going to respond. Obviously, Israel is the seven-foot guy, and and uh, Hamas is is totally uh, weak compared to Israel. It's not a, a proper army. Hamas doesn't pose a, 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 an existential threat to Israel. Israel poses an existential threat to Hamas. If Israel's willing whoa, wait, to— Wait, 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 wait. On October 7th, who posed an existential threat to who? It's not an existential threat. It de Hamas does not threaten the existence of the state of Israel. Israel threatens the existence of Hamas. Those are two. Who has the capability to destroy the other party? Israel can destroy Hamas if it's willing to pay a big enough a price and go in with ground troops, go in with the t in the tunnels and kill them. But uh, uh, it's not the case that Hamas could destroy Israel if it could have, it would have a long time ago. I think that's their goal, one at a time, right? One person at a time. I mean, you know, I think maybe you'd feel differently if it was, you know, a member of your family, like the way I'm watching these, you know, these poor people who are talking about their family members. But let me move on and ask you this. How did you come to see the bus crash sort of as a good starting point for a broader story about Israel and Palestinian history? Um you know, my, my goal with choosing the uh, crash was to um, choose an event that seems like it's uh, ordinary, that happens all over the world. I didn't want to choose something uh, like an attack, uh, like an invasion that could be exceptionalized, that could be looked at as um, 
some sort of, you know, extraordinary event that we need to investigate the specific reasons that precipitated that. I wanted to bring our attention to the everyday lives, the decades long reality of Israeli Jews and Palestinians living under this deeply unjust system. And uh, the crash allowed in this in the frame of a dramatic 24 hours the the worst day of these people's lives and you know the the israelis who came on the scene uh were also traumatized uh by what they saw there were ultra orthodox uh uh zaka workers who um normally come and pick up uh, uh, body parts at this at the scenes of a of an atrocity who came to the scene they were way too late and and there were just backpacks on the road and these these fathers these Haredi uh ultra-orthodox uh, orthodox fathers are you know can't stop thinking about their own uh 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 kids and when they send their own kids to school the next day in weeks uh with with those little backpacks on them they're thinking about this this accident so for me the crash was a way to tell the entire story of Israel-Palestine through this one event, because these people, they're living side by side. They're living totally unequal and separate existences, but they do interact with one another, and they and they came together uh, uh, in the most unexpected way on the day of this dramatic crash. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. Um what happened to the people that you wrote about in the book? You know, where are they right now at this moment? Uh, so the main protagonist, Abed Salama, who lost his son in the accident and spent more than 24 hours trying to search for him and wasn't able to find uh, even search in, in a Jerusalem hospital uh, for his son that morning. Uh, he's with me. He he's been going around uh, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, with me. We've been giving talks and appearing together in in uh, the media since October seventh. Uh, uh, his town was immediately shut down. Uh, they closed the two exits. There's one exit for the people with blue IDs who can go to Jerusalem, another exit for the one with the green IDs. They closed it down immediately. His family couldn't leave. All these people felt uh, trapped. His son isn't able to work right now. He has a, a job in Ramallah, and they, his employer told him not to come because there's all this settler violence in the West Bank right now, and it's mm -hmm. unsafe to drive on the roads. So, in fact, he's uh, cutting cutting short um our uh, our tour together in the US he's going to head back today just to 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 be with his family he's worried about them um the situation in the west bank has gotten very very violent uh since october 7th and um in east jerusalem as well you know ar ar the police are uh, arresting and beating palestinians taking their phones looking what's on them um and uh, we saw big protests in the city centers of the West Bank uh, yesterday against the Palestinian Authority, specifically for what I mentioned earlier, for uh, being a force that's working hand in glove with Israel to perpetuate this this decades long occupation. So he's going home now um, to be with his family and. Um, uh, other other people I know are are uh, scared to death for the future of their kids in this place. It is a terrible, terrible time. I've never felt so much despair over the future of this place. And um, 
And there are, you know, mothers and aunts I know who are worried about their children. They don't want them to even go outside and encounter Israeli police. But on both sides, right? On both sides. On both sides. I mean, I know know mothers and yeah. And that's, that's the problem. Like, you know, so many people that I speak to here in America, and again, we're completely, I don't want to call us ignorant, but we're out of touch into the realities that are taking place um, in, you know, in the Middle East, uh, in, in Israel uh, and Gaza. But one thing for certain is, where's the, you know, where's the, um, where's the Palestinian authority in terms of controlling their own, their own property, right? I mean, Hamas is running rampant around here. You know, it brings me to a question I wanted to ask you. In a recent interview that you conducted for The New Yorker, you described the attacks by Hamas as suicidal. Do you, do you mean that the attacks were suicidal for the future of Hamas as an organization, or that it was suicidal in that it will cause pain and suffering for the Palestinian people? Uh, well, clearly, uh, both of those things, it, it, it was uh, suicidal on multiple levels. It was suicidal for the uh, individuals who took part in this operation, for the thousands who crossed the border and did the October 7th attack. Uh, it was suicidal for Hamas's territorial control of Gaza because uh, Israel has stated clearly that it intends to end Hamas's uh, territorial control of Gaza. Now, that's a lot easier to say than to do. But again, this comes back to the existential threat issue. Israel can do it if it wants to, if it's willing to pay the price. It will be a very high price, and they don't have an exit strategy, and they don't know who they would replace them with. But the actual task of killing the uh, Hamas leadership and all of the Hamas militants, or most of them, that's, that is an achievable goal for Israel. So it was suicidal in that sense. And of course, Hamas had to know that Israel would, as it has in the past, collectively punish the people of Gaza for whatever they did, and that, that, that there would be a huge death toll uh, for, for innocent people. So, so uh, on all of those levels. But I don't think that it means, you know, Hamas as an idea or as a political entity that people can look to or that could potentially, you know, lead uh, in the future. You know, that is that you can't you can't destroy. But you can but would dis- you not say but would you not say because you brought it up and said that, you know, Israel obviously is the seven foot, you know, um, fighter in this, you know, in this scenario, if they wanted to level Gaza, if they really had no care they are leveling Gaza. or they, compassion, they're leveling Gaza right now. They've if, they re- if they wanted to level Gaza, com- uh, the Gaza uh, completely, they could have easily done it already. They're doing uh, instead, it. They are, they're leveling they are Gaza. Targeting, have you looked at the photos of the They are targeting buildings. I have. They are targeting buildings that they have verified information that this is where Hamas is located and that this is where that they have strategic positions or munitions within which to, um, you know, to fire against Israel. 
I'm they sorry, are not we just have been randomly so picking. many of these wars in Gaza with so many targets that were shown not to have anything but a civilian family inside. There have been so many innocent people killed. You you cannot say that that every Israeli bombing is is against a, a rocket launching facility or, or anything of that kind. That it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, read the I, listen. I'm not going to I'm not going to argue with you. I'm, I won't argue with you on that point. There were mistakes that are made in war. It's not a mistake when you're hitting a civilian building. You're deliberately attacking houses. No, they are not. They are not attacking houses or civilian buildings just simply to attack houses or civilian buildings. They're attacking apartment towers. What is it when they attack an apartment tower knowing that there are a lot of people inside? Verifiable information. They clearly have verified information. No, no, but listen, li- listen. That the, the, is, the, that, the that is an area that they should clear. strike. I'm sorry. The laws of war are clear. There is something called proportionality. If there is a single guy with a gun shooting at you from a building and you are the strongest army in the Middle East and you're fighting against a terrorist militia, you are not allowed to bomb a civilian building and kill dozens of people inside that building because one guy's shooting. I think they also turn around and don't they also drop leaflets saying you have 24 hours to get out because we are going to take that location out. I mean, it's not as if this is just random, you know, blowing up of buildings. But look, I I, want to ask you this question. Do some of the Palestinians that you know see Hamas's attack as a positive development? Uh, yeah, there are people, uh, who are clearly, uh, who are clearly, you know, felt pride when Hamas was able to break out of this caged prison, uh, when they were able to, uh, give Israel a bloody nose and show and shock, uh, Israel and, uh, and, uh, ruin its image uh, even of itself. Uh, as uh, as a, a, a mighty p- power in the Middle East that that this could never happen to, certainly not by a force as weak as Hamas compared to them. Um, yeah, you know, when people there, there, there are there are people who who felt that, of course. It's a problem, don't you agree? I mean, would you say that these people who were pro Hamas and pro the barbaric murdering? And execution of innocent civilians. No, but that's not what I said. Don't I you think say, that? I did but not, don't you think that these are the same? Sorry, but you're, aren't you're, these the same people you're, then? You're twisting that what if I said. They, well, you're I'm not. I'm not. I said. I did these not are the say people that. then that are spending time in these buildings, right? And they happen to potentially be the ones with the rocket launchers pointing at Israel. I mean, th- this is exactly the problem. You can't put your finger on and say this person. Person number one is Hamas. Person number two is an innocent civilian. And as I agree with you, should not be harmed, not, nor should their family. Only those that seek to, you know, to do harm should be terminated, unfortunately, when they hide in civilian populations and they are controlling that civilian population you know, again, it just goes back to my very first question to you. Like, you know, how do you create an acceptable response? And I'm still hoping one day somebody will give me that answer.
Because you keep inventing a scenario that isn't the case. I just told you there are thousands of Hamas fighters sitting in tunnels. They're not immersed in the in the in the population. They're, you're inventing some. How scenario do you, I'm where, sorry. How do you know, Nathan? How do you know that? Because all military information that I have read coming out of America, coming out of uh, from Israel, uh, even coming out from Gaza are turning around and saying that they are all over the place. They're running the streets right now. The they are IDF in buildings. They're not all, said, listen they're to not me. all hanging out, but they're not all in tunnels. The, the IDF spokesperson said our goal is damage, not precision. It's very clear. They're admitting it. They're announcing openly that they are trying to hit things indiscriminately. It's a war crime. There is no ambiguity here. You're coming here doing the work of the IDF spokesperson saying he things he's not even claiming. He's not saying that everything we're hitting is is filled with uh, terrorists in a in a in a civilian. Not, by the way, building. neither did I. Neither did I. What I had said is yes, unfortunately you are. You sometimes keep repeating that no, point. I am not. You keep repeating no, I am that not. point. What I'm the point I will continue to repeat is that Hamas is is integrated into the Palestinian community, and I think it's probably incumbent upon the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinians to take control over their own property and turn and say, hey. We don't want our children to be killed. We don't want to die. We don't want our loved ones to be injured or terminated, right? The civilian population of Gaza, the civilian population of Gaza is not responsible for the actions of Hamas, full stop. Well, um, they are when they're standing on top of a burnt out tank, enjoying the fact that there's dead bodies laying all around them. Okay, and, and as so you just stated, if, that there and, are a group of Palestinians, right, that see Hamas's attack as some positive development for whatever it is that they want no, to see. I'm but let, sorry. Me, let me move on. I'm sorry. A civilian, even a civilian, cheering on the fact that Hamas grabbed an Israeli tank or standing on a tank, that is civilian is not... Uh, responsible, and certainly the people of Gaza, collectively, all the other millions of civilians who have nothing to do with it are not responsible. So th- these are, are genocidal statements to collectively hold responsible all of these people for the actions of this militia. And not even all of Hamas knew about the, the attack, Hamas itself. So, so to hold the the two point three million people responsible for something I'm they didn't know anything about. I'm not holding the two point three. I'm not holding the two point three million. And again, I would hope that none of them get hurt. You just said civilians However, are responsible. You just said civilians are responsible. They are responsible. Those that are working alongside Hamas for whatever their reasons might be. Tell me what 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 right you know um, or what obligation is there within which to honor those kids that were just dancing at this outdoor fair when all of this happened, when Hamas just came in and just, and after the murder of innocent people, just like the ones that you claim that are dancing on top of the tanks, 
What did these no, other people do? That was an example do? that you gave. What you did these other some people scenario do? And I was responding to it saying that if there were people dancing on a tank, they do not deserve to be killed. If a civilian dances on top of a tank, they've been occupied. How do you know that this, how do you know that this civilians, how do you know that they are not armed are out really, of their bed? You invented this hypothetical. I'm just asking you. You invented not a, a hypothetical. First of all, I'm not inventing it. It's not inventing it. It's video of it happening. So look, let, let, me, let me move on and just ask you this then. Because my question is, what was the strategic objective for them in carrying out such, a, such an attack? I mean, these are politically media savvy people who must know that the images of what happened would be seen by the world and that Israel would be basically given a blank check, morally speaking, to go into Gaza and take it all back, including their hostages. Yeah. What's the strategic objective? Uh, they, they, I think, were surprised by the extent to which the Israeli military uh, crumbled when they penetrated the uh, border. And um, I think that they themselves had no anticipation that they would um, go as far as they did, that they would hold the territory as long as they did, that they would get as many hostages as they did, that they would take over as many bases as they did, that it would take that many days for Israel to re regain control even of, of its own streets and bases. Uh, all of those things I think were uh, shocking to uh, Hamas itself. But of course, the nature of the attack, regardless of the extent of, of their uh, uh, success in executing it, the, the nature of the attack uh, was a qualitatively different one. And yes, they had to know that there would be a qualitatively different kind of Israeli uh, response. And they've been preparing for that. That's why they have this huge underground tunnel network. I'm sure they intend to uh, snatch more Israeli uh, soldiers when Israel goes in on the ground. Um, and their intention is to do an enormous, to release every Palestinian prisoner. Their, their intention is to do an exchange and get, you know, 5,000 plus Palestinians out of jail. And if they achieve that, they will be um, the, uh, you know, unrivaled uh, uh, leaders uh, politically uh, of the national movement. It's, it, what I just thought, just reflecting back for a second, when I had said to you that the Palestinian Authority uh, has a responsibility to protect its citizens the same way that the Knesset, um, you know, Netanyahu have an obligation to protect Israeli citizens. I mean, so far, all I understand is that a ton of the money that is being sent to Palestine from uh, the various countries around the world just seems to be going into the building of tunnels as opposed to creating a better life for the Palestinian people, which is really disgraceful. The sensation that ignited Broadway is back. The Wiz. new vision for a brand new day. Ease on down and get tickets to The Wiz at the Hollywood Pantages Theater, February 13th through March 3rd. For tickets, visit Broadway at Hollywood.com. But my question to you is this. 
How do you see Palestinian politics looking in a few months? How do you think that it might look different in a few months? Uh, you know, in a few months, we we may have uh, uh, Israel. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to predict a few days from now, much less a few months from now. We may have Israel uh, occupying uh, a buffer zone in Gaza. Uh, we may have, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are in southern Gaza and unable to return to their homes. Uh, we may have uh, the Palestinian, um, uh, you know, uprising against the PA and the West Bank that we saw yesterday, the first uh, glimmers of it. Uh, lead to uh, to to PA collapse. I mean, there, there, it's we are at the beginning of a very dark period. We're in a dark period. It's going to get darker, and um, you know where that's going to go. No one, no one can tell you. Yeah. So okay. So obviously the hour goes by quick here. Uh, my last question to you, because it's very similar to the conversation that you and I are having. We clearly uh, don't see eye to eye on this, but we're not the only two that are having a debate about how we should talk about the events of October 7th and the events of the past week. I mean, some people, call it yourself, want to focus on the plight of Palestinians in Gaza right now, or the occupation uh, of Gaza uh, as the root cause of this attack, while others like myself suggest that to do so is to justify Hamas's actions. What do you say to that? What do you say to this debate? There's no debate for me. The, uh, nobody's justifying. I mean, I won't speak for other people. I'm not justifying, have never justified Hamas's uh, actions on October 7th. I said to you very clearly, they're reprehensible and, uh, and they are war crimes. And the killing of civilians, there is no excuse for it. So that's clear. And, and the notion that you have to that, that you cannot condemn those and at the same time talk about why we keep having violence in this place for decades with a decades long occupation that is not going away and decades of land confiscation and decades of slow transfer of Palestinians from their homes just since the beginning of 2022, more than 1,100 Palestinians have been forcibly displaced by settler militias in the West Bank. So these are root causes. This, you know, people want to be free. People don't want to live under a regime of ethnic supremacy. People don't want to be forcibly displaced for the, from their homes and have, you know, homes for a different ethnic group built on top of them. Th these are obviously drivers of violence and uh, there is absolutely no contradiction in condemning a war crimes committed by Hamas, b war crimes committed by Israel, and c talking about the root causes of this conflict. Well, the root causes is that you have a terrorist organization that's running rampant through an area, and they are a terrorist organization. There's no doubt about that one. I'm just trying to, again, without going to, uh, you know, the removal of people from homes. Uh, again, this to me is deplorable and it's reprehensible and it should not happen. But I don't see any potential justification for the actions of October 7th with 
removal of of people from their homes. You, there's just no there's no is correlation. Justifying it. And I am not right, justifying it. My, I haven't justified it. That's my it. question. That's no, my no, question I to you. I answered your this question. This debate, this debate is an ongoing debate. And it's my only question to you is how do you then, you know, how do you then, again, just acknowledge Hamas's actions without putting blame on Israel for what it is that they, for what it is that they did? There has to be an answer there. I did answer you. Hamas's actions are reprehensible. Israel's war crimes are reprehensible. This thing is going to continue. There is going to continue to be bloodshed unless we look at root causes. That is the purpose of my book, A Day in the Life. Hey, whoa, hold, on, hold on. That is the purpose of my book, A Day in the Life of Abid Salama. Looking at the day in and day out, you can't read that book and not, not feel in your bones this is a moral catastrophe. This is a grave injustice. This is a situation that has been going on with U.S. support for decades, and any people subjected to it would fight against it. And that will continue to occur and will lead to horrible bloodshed that I want to end. Simple uh, as and that. So do I. And, and so do I. I think there's nobody that doesn't want to see the end of this 3,000 year conflict. However, you know, not when you turn around and you're saying that civilians, right? Um, because of. Sorry, this is not a 3,000 year conflict. Yeah, what I find. This is not. That is finding, total mischaracterization. Right. This is not what a 3,000 year conflict. Is, what, what I'm finding is that you're, you're throwing blame onto Israel and to these innocent civilians. I'm trying to talk about specifically October 7th, and you're trying to provide some root cause that gives justification for their actions. I just don't see it. But Nathan, I thank you, you know, for your perspective. Um, and I really do wish you the best. And I wish everybody over there absolute peace. I really do wish everybody peace. Uh, I don't want to see one single innocent person hurt, not scratched, let alone killed. So uh, I wish you um, all the best and um, everybody there um, in Israel and Gaza. Thanks, Michael. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. For many Jews around the world, myself included, the idea of Israel has always been more than just a geographical location. It's a dream that embodies the historical yearning for a homeland, a place of refuge, and a sanctuary for the Jewish identity. This dream has been woven into the fabric of our collective consciousness, passed down through generations, and celebrated as a symbol of hope and resilience. However, these awful attacks have left me disillusioned and most importantly disheartened. The images of suffering, destruction, and loss of innocent lives are profoundly painful to witness, regardless of one's perspective on the conflict. It is crucial to emphasize that expressing heartbreak and sorrow as a Jew, well, it does not diminish the suffering and pain that should be expressed that are being experienced by Palestinians. The suffering of one community should never be pitted against that of another. Both Israelis and Palestinians have endured immense hardship and deserve empathy, understanding, and a path to a peaceful and just coexistence. Now I want to be clear, Palestine is not Hamas, 
every motherfucking Hamas terrorist, motherfucking asshole should be wiped off the face of this planet and their hateful ideology needs to be eradicated from our complete understanding or knowledge. They are not the same and that's what I tried to talk about in this episode. But remember that the shattered dream of Israel, however, does not mean abandoning hope for a better future. Instead, it serves as a poignant reminder of the urgent need for a just and lasting resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It underscores the importance of dialogue, empathy, and a renewed commitment to finding common ground, even in the face of seemingly unsurmountable challenges. And the only way, again, that this can happen is to rid Hamas of Palestine. They are like an organized fucking terrorist gang that is putting the Palestinian people, innocent Palestinian people's lives in jeopardy. And I call on the Palestinian Authority to do something. It is upon them within which to get rid of this group of animals that lurk and live in, the, in between them, using them as shields. But as a Jew, I believe the values of justice, compassion, and reconciliation that are deeply rooted in our Jewish tradition be upheld. It is my hope that these values can guide the way forward, leading to a future where Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side in peace, security, and dignity. And people like Tom Cotton, Republican of Georgia, who says that we should level Gaza completely, just wipe everyone out. That cannot be accepted. It should not be accepted. Not as a Jew, not as an American. And while my heart may be broken by the current state of affairs, I do remain hopeful that through collective efforts and a commitment to understanding the pain of all involved, the dream of a better Israel, a better Middle East, and a brighter future for that entire region can one day be realized. And as we would say, Baruch Hashem to that, I pray to God that it happens. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. 